World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks with Kim Munson. This is my World War II project. Be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com. And I am the Americhicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. All of these shows are archived at my website. And uh, so certainly you'll want to go back and listen to them. Particularly today, on the line I have with me uh, Dick Manchester, World War II veteran. He was in Company K. 4th Battalion, 345th Regiment, a part of the 87th Division. And last week, we were going through Dick's memoirs and the stories. Oh, my gosh, the stories are so amazing. Uh, he, We went through his first day of combat uh, when he uh, fought at the Battle of the Bulge and also fighting at the Siegfried Line. So, Dick Manchester, it is just so great to have you on the line with me. Oh, thank you, so we're ready to go. We are ready to go. Let's uh, before we go on into the future in your memoirs. There was one story that I don't think that we we got to last week, and it was riveting when I I read it. And that was regarding when you guys came up on uh, some German sh- soldiers that had been been killed, and it was so cold that they were frozen. So share with our listeners what happened exactly. I'm going to jump ahead here uh, because uh, this actually occurred uh, after the Battle of the Bulge and uh, after we had gone south and uh, in Luxembourg. Uh, then we we swept north and uh, and we were going to uh, participate in uh, trying to break through the Siegfried Line. And we went through, uh, the Battle of the Bulge was over. Uh, we took a circuitous route through Bastogne, which uh, by now had been cleared and was uh, of Germans, of course. Uh, and people were cleaning up. Then we went to another town on our way north to Hoofelis. This town had been flattened. It was absolutely uh, incredible, the worst uh, beaten-up town I had seen at all. And then we closed in on our uh, destination for that journey, and we stayed uh, along with the uh, 82nd Airborne, the uh, 7th Armored Division, uh, in St. Vith, uh, which had been a key uh, element of holding on uh, and preventing the Germans from uh, breaking through in the northern shoulder of the bulge. So uh, there were, all of us were kind of milling around in the town looking for some place, because there were so many soldiers, some place we could uh, maybe cook some dinner. So we found a small uh, open space between buildings, and we said, ah, let's let's cook our dinner, which actually was done on Bunsen burners uh, and was a little more than than just cold. And we noticed, uh, and of course everything was snow-covered, that there were dead German soldiers 
and there was a almost a circle of them and perhaps they had been in the chow line and perhaps a shell or a bomb had dropped this they, they served uh, a, a purpose for us because we had nowhere to sit to eat our dinner so what we did and it, it sounds pretty crude we rolled over these frozen bodies of uh, dead germans uh, close to a fire but not too close and we sat on them and we had our dinner uh, people say oh my god how could you do that but by this time you get used to almost anything and uh, then we pulled out of St. Vith the next yeah, day. Yeah, and one, one note on that, though, Dick, also, you know, you guys were out in this bitter, bitter, bitter cold. And so if you could sit down and not be on the ground, um, I mean, that, that was, I mean that, that was important because it was so cold. That's one of the things that, that we see throughout your writings, your memoirs, is how cold it was. So I just wanted to make that, that note because in, and you guys were pretty battle Battle, uh, um, battle-hardened. Yeah, battle-hardened would, yeah. battle would be the word. <laughs> so right. I thought that was a, a a powerful story, and just wanted to make sure that that you you told that. So okay, now take it from there. All right, uh, we found some place uh, to sleep that night in St. Vith, and the next morning, uh, very early, uh, we took off. And uh, our next uh, journey was going to be to the Siegfried Line. Uh, and we, we went out of town. Uh, we started up a, uh, a long hill, a single file, and one of our men, it was about number five in front of me, stepped on what is known as a bouncing Betty. Uh, this is a German mine that if you step on it, it will pop up about waist high and, and explode. And the poor guy was, was killed. Uh, and so we had to carefully step around him. And then we also uh, had to make sure that we stepped in the footsteps of the man in front of us. And... Uh, uh, Eventually, we got to our destination, was up in a stand of woods, and it was cold. Uh, it was so cold that one of my good friends uh, said that he was so cold that night that he curled up in his uh, foxhole, and he said, I wanted to give up. I was just so cold and miserable, I just didn't care anymore. But he revived. He was a good man. Uh, the next morning, uh, we were up, uh, had a semblance of a breakfast in this <clears throat> stand of woods. And uh, there would be an occasional shell that would be coming in. Uh, it hadn't done any damage. Uh, and as we sat there uh, finishing up, um, one of our runners uh, <clears throat> came in and uh, he had a message to deliver and we liked him because he was a very calm guy he smoked a pipe and he always had a can of Prince Albert in his hip pocket mm -hmm. so um, we fixed him up with what he needed to go back to his uh, 
his squad, uh, or his platoon, rather, and, and he walked away. And he hadn't been gone more than, I'm going to say, a minute. And a shell came in, a tree burst, and it killed him. Oh, my gosh. And that, that really struck me, how random everything is. Uh, he was uh, here, and boy, a minute or two later, he was gone. Yeah. And explain to our listeners, uh, Dick Manchester, World War II veteran, what is a tree burst? When, when shells, when, when incoming shells strike uh, the branches of a tree, uh, it explodes, but it also breaks up the branches of the trees, and the shrapnel rains down. So it's deadly. And, uh, it's very deadly, isn't it's, it? It's one of the most deadly situations there is, and that is to try to live through tree bursts. Uh, if you're dug in, uh, or even uh, trying to go through a forest. So we finally assembled, and, and then we started down. And uh, as we left the, uh, the forest, uh, we were being shelled by Germans, but fortunately there were some rather deep ditches on, uh, on each on each side of this road, and we were able to take cover there uh, between being uh, between shell bursts, and uh, got down to the floor of a of a really uh, flat, long valley. And for some reason, the shelling stopped. So we moved uh, across the floor of this valley, and uh, that took us. Well, I'm going to say most of the day, uh, we didn't come under any fire, and we we came on uh, two houses and a small hill. Uh, and as we started to go around the this small hill, we were fired on, but fortunately missed everybody by a German anti-tank gun. So we pulled back, and we called for support. And eventually down the road came a, uh, an M4 Sherman tank. And we tried to flag him down and say, don't go around this hill. Don't go around. And they ignored us. And they went, they went around the hill, and sure enough, bang, uh, the, the tank was fired on. And suddenly, all the hatches flew open in the tank, and the men, and I think there were four or five of them, poured out of it, and uh, we said, wait a minute, wait a minute, and they ran past us, and went past us, and were running away down the road that we just came up on. And we looked at each other and thought, what is going on here? And as we watched, a second tank came up, and the the, the soldiers who had been on the first tank uh, jumped on the second tank, which didn't even bother to turn around. It just went in reverse and disappeared, <laughs> and we just kind of laughed at the whole thing. And... Uh, 
so what we we eventually did is uh, we sent a patrol around the backside of this hill, and they disposed of this uh, German and a tank gun and crew. And so uh, darkness was coming on, and we thought, well, let's move into one of these houses. And uh, it was vacant, of course. And so we moved in, and uh, set, we were fixing up some, uh, we didn't have any uh, cooks, uh, we were too far in front of them, and uh, we were settling in and building a fire in the fireplace, and one of the men stepped outside the front door and was almost cut down by a, a German machine gun, and he jumped back in, and he said, my God, he said, the Germans are in the house next door. Well, this started off something that was really kind of crazy. Uh, I had the SCR 300 with me, which was the uh, walkie-talkie. And we also, I discovered, had a, a, a forward observer uh, called an FO uh, who most of, not most of the time, but quite often would accompany us uh, or other troops, and they would use their binoculars or whatever else they needed and they would they would look to see if there were any targets of opportunity for our uh, artillery and so the f o was there, and however, he didn't have a radio. And I said, well, let's do this. Um, you, t you have the map, which he did. You tell me what the coordinates, coordinates are, and I will send those to uh, our battalion headquarters. They can relay them on to the, uh, your battery. Uh, and maybe we can hit that house next door. <laughs> it was absolutely ridiculous. So that occupied us all night trying to drop one shell on the house next door. Well, I would and, hope that, yeah, yeah, that's pretty close into the house next door. So, my yeah, gosh. <laughs> right. So I don't know that we ever that we ever really hit the house, but we must have frightened the Germans enough that uh, when when it was daylight, uh, we discovered they had abandoned the house. Well, so you were successful, but I do think that is a little risky to have them trying to hit the house next door because you you were awfully close. We were close. We were just lucky they didn't hit our house. Exactly. We didn't hit our own house. Exactly. Um, yeah, I would say the, the houses were probably separated by, oh, my gosh, it couldn't be more than 25 or 30 feet. <laughs> but You anyway, guys were young uh, kids, and you were fearless by that time. I mean, you were battle-hardened, and uh, wow, that's quite a story. Maybe, maybe you could say, even say maybe we were a little dumb. Uh, so we I, I would never today. say that, Dick. I would never say that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So uh, we we set off the next day. Now uh, we were going to try to force the Siegfried line, um, and we were following one of the roads that that was used by the Germans when they. Uh, generated their blitzkrieg and started the whole business of the Battle of the Bulge. And as we we went through what was known as the Schnee Eiffel, 
uh, uh, woods. We we followed these winding roads, and we couldn't believe what we would see, because in deep ravines off to our right, you could see where the Germans uh, pushing through had just simply, so they wouldn't be held up, had simply bulldozed or pushed every bit of rolling equipment down into this ravine. And I thought, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, there were trucks, uh, uh, automobile, uh, jeeps, uh, um, artillery, and it was all down in this deep ravine. Uh, I, I was just absolutely stunned by it. Hmm. As we pushed on, uh, we came to uh, what you call a hairpin turn, and that's where you have uh, the road is roughly shaped like a hairpin. Um, and I, I said, oh, we've got to be careful here uh, because I'm sure if there's any artillery, it'll be registered on this hairpin turn. Uh, and I... Shortly afterwards, uh, as I was climbing a hill uh, with Sergeant Garber, who at that time was our uh, headed up the communications section, uh, he and I, he was looking for a a recent uh, new re, not a recruit really, but a new addition, a, a replacement uh, for us. And uh, I said, what, what are we looking for? He says, I'm trying to find uh, this fellow. And I said, oh, I didn't see him. Uh, is he brand new? And he said, yeah. Uh, and so as we were climbing this, uh, the slope of this hill on the, on the left side of the road, uh, sure enough, uh, we were fired on by an 88. And... Uh, the Sergeant Garber uh, was struck in the left, in the right hand, uh, which happened to be a hand where he was missing a trigger finger, which didn't keep him out of the Army, but it struck that hand. And he said, oh, God, I've been hit in the hand. I'm going to go back. And I said, well, all right, I'll take the radio. And uh, so I figured, I, I, instead of following him down the hill, I went up the hill to where there were some chicken coops. And I thought, they're not, they're not going to waste a shell on one man. But I could see that German battery across the ravine on the next hill. And so I took my time. Uh, I stayed around the, the, the chicken coops, empty, of course, for a while. And then I figured, well, they've, the battery is probably gone away by now because they'd be too prominent a, a target for either our planes or our own artillery. And so I came back down on the road, and we continued on. And I would say we worked, oh, probably uh, late afternoon, uh, and finally uh, we were relieved by another unit. Uh, and so we had to look for a, a place to, to sleep that night. And we had noticed that there was a house that we had passed uh, not, not too far behind us. And we said, let's, let's stay in that house. 
and so we went back. There were, oh, I'm going to say there were about three or four of us at this time. We went back to the, the location of the house, and there was a one of our tanks was parked out front. And we said, ooh, we can't have this. Uh, we fought for this house, and it's going to be ours. And so we said, first of all, uh, let's take their rations, um, which was, they ate very well. They're called 20-in-1 rations. So we stole that off the back of their tank. Jeez. And then we went up the steps, and uh, uh, with our rifles in the hand, we told them, fellas, <laughs> This is our house. We fought for this, and you're going to have to get out of here. And they said, well, okay, if, if, if it's your house, it's your house, and they left. Wow. So, Dick Manchester, let's, uh, let's stop here. We're going to go to break and come back with these amazing stories. Before we do that, though, just wanted to mention one of my good partners, and that is Hooters Restaurants. My story with Hooters Restaurants is a story of liberty, free markets, and a conservatarian perspective. It stems from when I served as city councilwoman in Lone Tree. And so if you're interested in learning more about that, go to my website, uh, americhicks.com. Okay. And I love sports. Individuals working hard to be the best they can be to compete and win. And Hooters Restaurants is my sports head quarters. Uh, March Madness is right around the corner here, and I am a KU basketball fan. So Hooters specials start at $10 (laughs) for a draft and 10 boneless wings. And uh, more information, you can actually have Hooters wings delivered to your front door. So check out HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the Americhicks. We're going to go to break. We'll be right back with World War II veteran Dick Manchester. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. All these shows are archived there. Thrilled to have on the line with me today World War II veteran Dick Manchester. He uh, served in the European Theater. He was Company K, 4th Battalion, 345th Regiment, 87th Division. And check out the 87th Division website. Uh, Dick's memoirs are there, among uh, many others. Uh, But Dick Manchester, it is such an honor to be chatting with you. And we actually did uh, a previous interview that was last week. So if this, uh, if you missed it last week, you're going to want to go back and hear that as well. But uh, Dick, let's go ahead. We are talking about uh, the Siegfried line and what uh, what you were doing there. So take it from there. Uh, all right. Thank you. Uh, uh, we pushed on. Uh, the following day uh, after a good sleep in that house and uh, eventually got to a a little hillside town which I never do I didn't like the looks of it it gave me a funny feeling it was Cobeshide and we were going to as they say jump off from there and we were going to try to penetrate the Siegfried line. And so the next morning, uh, we assembled and walked, uh, started to walk uh, through a a stand of of woods. Uh, And uh, I was on the... uh, uh, I was on the the left flank of our, we were advancing in a front. I was on the left side uh, with um, uh, my good buddy, Dick Steck. Uh, 
And so as we marched along, suddenly a I, it was it was across a field uh, hidden in the woods. I think it was probably a self-propelled uh, 88, and they fired on Dick and me, and we dove into what I can only describe as about a six-inch deep uh, water course that was used to drain uh, from the uh, from this uh, this forest, and. That the crew in that 88 kept after us. They were trying to get get a a, a shell that would hit us directly, and we would be thrown by dirt would be showered all over us from a shell that explodes exploded maybe about two or three feet away, and finally they gave up. Uh, and they shifted their fire to another part of our our uh, group. And at that time, uh, I heard a voice on the footpath uh, above us and behind us, and I it was uh, it was medic medic, and I thought medic and. I got I got up out of the water course, and I looked, and the fella, I don't know how he got there. I'm, in fact, I don't know how he survived. Uh, his name was Kovar. He was the smallest man in our company, and he was the biggest chow hound. <laughs> uh, I can remember that I was behind him in a chow line, uh, one day, and we got uh, three pancakes that morning. And he turned to me, and there were tears in his eyes. And he said, "I can remember when we only got two pancakes." Oh my gosh! <laughs> and uh, uh, Kovar was was a real character. Anyway, um, I laid down beside him, and to see where he'd been hit, and he'd taken a shell fragment. Uh, in his left leg that had hit him above the knee and had uh, actually exited his leg uh, at, at the lower part, uh, almost at the ankle. So uh, with my little first aid kit, I put some sulfur powder on it and uh, I taped it up. Uh, and then... Uh, thinking, well, the medics should be along, uh, and we'll turn him over to them. And, and by this time, of course, I imagine the the Germans had had left. Uh, then I, I heard a tank coming up, one of our own tanks coming up through the woods, and I thought, ooh, uh, let's see. I, First of all, uh, I hope he doesn't draw any fire. And secondly, uh, I don't want him to come too close to where we have Kovar. And so I, I yelled up at the tank, and the sergeant, uh, red-haired guy, jumped down, and I said, uh, I, I don't think we're going to take any more fire here, but uh, up ahead of you, there's a man on the ground. He's been wounded, and I want you to make sure you, you 
you stay away from that part. And so he understood that, and he got back in his tank and, and moved on. And then a uh, one of the uh, litter bearers uh, from the battalion uh, medic uh, came up, and he was carrying a, a litter, and we said, oh, uh, here's a here's a man who's been wounded, and he says, "Here, you take the litter. I don't have time to do that." So I looked at Dick Steck, and I said, "Well, it looks we're going to have to carry Kovar into the battalion aid station." So we loaded him on there, and this was my first time carrying a man on a litter, and I'll tell you, it is really. We must have walked at least a half a mile, and this man was small, and my legs, my arms felt like they were going to drop off, mm-hmm. and so we'd have to put him down from time to time, and finally we got to the aid station, and now it was late afternoon, and we took uh, Kovar in there, and then... As we were standing outside the aid station uh, tent, uh, a uh, a sergeant came along, and uh, he had been hit badly. Um, part of his uh, arm was gone, and one of, one of the uh, not a surgeon, but probably one of the nurses said, "Well, what can we do for you today?" And it did something to me. I, I just blanked out. Uh, I, I sat down, and I, I couldn't move. And I stayed. I sat there in front of the aid station. Nobody bothered me. I stayed there all night uh, with nothing running through my head. And then the next morning, I got up and, and went back to uh, my company. Wow. Uh, it was my, I would say, the worst moment that I can recall uh, in World War II, and it was just simply uh, that series of uh, happenings had just temporarily, I had just kind of blanked out. Wow. So um, the next morning, we set off again back through the woods, uh, but this time no impediment uh, to our progress, and we... <clears throat> We crossed over, we went over a crossroad, and our destination this time was a town uh, called Neuendorf. And Neuendorf was situated right in the midst of uh, what I would call the, the Siegfried Line. Uh, in fact, there had been a, uh, an abandoned uh, pillbox uh, right in the in in Kobscheid itself, but it, of course it was empty. Uh, then, uh, as we as we approached Neuendorf, uh, we were taking uh, a lot of small arms fire, and uh, Dick Steck and I were uh, lying uh, side by side at the uh, the the road that that went into the. Uh, in the Kobeshide, and every time we tried to cross the road, uh, there was a machine gun would open up, and <clears throat> bullets, would, uh, bullets would come skittering down the, the paving. 
So I looked at him. He looked at me and said, well, who wants to go first? <laughs> I can tell you Dick Steck was the bravest man I ever knew. Aww. And he also was the, he was a little pudgy fellow with a cherubic uh, face and a, and a kind of a hoarse vo- voice. But man, he was real. Uh, so uh, Steck said, well, I'll go first. And so he dashed across the road. And so I waited. I dashed across the road. And I guess we took the machine gunner by surprise because uh, by the time we get to the other side was when bullets came skipping down the the paving. And we saw a house. And we headed for that uh, because the situation was pretty darn fluid. and it didn't look like there was anything that we could take some shelter there before we tried to get into the town itself. And so we came up on the the lee side of this uh, house. And as we stopped around the corner from where the firing was, just saying, well, what's our next move? Uh, a sergeant came around the corner and he said, we need volunteers. Uh, And and he said, uh, uh, Captain, and I can't recall his name right now. I think he said Captain uh, Wall. I remember him. He was a big man. He said, he's been hit, and uh, we need litter bearers. And I looked at at, at Steck, and I said, litter bearers, oh, my God. I thought, and I said, we have to cross an open field. Uh, we didn't have any Red Cross armbands or anything, and we had so much trouble with Kovar the previous day. I thought, God, I don't know if we can carry this uh, this company commander because he was a big guy. Uh, he was, I wasn't going to say, he was easily over six feet tall. I know he weighed over 200 pounds. Oh, wow. And before we could answer, thank God, uh, the sergeant came back around the corner and he said, forget it, he died. Mm -hmm. And uh, found out later that he had been uh, killed by a sniper. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, Steck and I eventually worked our way into the town and uh, it fell into uh, the hands of K Company. And we were then going to be in there. We didn't realize it. We were going to be in Neuendorf for three weeks. Wow. And so we just had to settle down and not knowing that we were going to be there that long and figure out uh, what house we're going to stay in. That was it, it, The town had been bombed. Uh, and we're trying to select a house uh, with at least uh, some remaining cover to it, which we did. And so we settled in, and the first thing we noticed was uh, we were being fired on randomly from a town called Ruth, uh, which couldn't have been more than a mile away, but it was at a higher elevation than Neuendorf. And it just seemed like every time you stepped outside, somebody dropped a mortar shell. And as a matter of fact, we had uh, just received, uh, which we'd never had before, a new executive officer 
and uh, uh, he had just stepped out uh, of a house and a uh, a mortar shell dropped right at his feet and killed him. And he's only and he's only been with us for a day. Oh, okay. uh, wow. We also had uh, Vladimir Giglovich, the mad Russian. Uh, he was a second lieutenant, and I'm not quite sure uh, what his uh, what his duties were, but he was something else. And so as the days wore on, uh, Giglovich would come to me and he'd say, come on, Manch, um, uh, let's lay some fire on those guys in, their, in those krauts in Ruth. And so we would go to a little knoll outside of town uh, with a 30 caliber machine gun. He'd carry the machine gun and I'd carry the bipod for it. And we'd lay down and he'd fire a long burst into Ruth. Then we'd pick up the the, the, the machine gun and we'd run back into town for shelter. And that went on, I know, for at least a week. And, uh, and there was nothing else to do. Uh, apparently, uh, we had uh, we were ahead of uh, the rest of the army, so to speak. Uh, we were out on a uh, on a kind of a peninsula, and, and nobody else had come up even with us. Uh, and that's why we had to stay in Ruth. Uh, excuse me, in. Uh, in, in Neuendorf until the line could be straightened out, which uh, eventually it did. But before that, uh, when we were finally, we thought, we're going to get, be relieved, we assembled on what I'm going to call the company street. It was the main street in town. Uh, we were all assembled, and uh, in came... Uh, it's called a screaming Mimi, and it, the Germans call it a Minnenwerfer. And what it is, it is a, it is a, uh, a conglomeration, not a conglomeration. It is uh, a lot of rockets that come in. I would say maybe 15 or 20 at one time, and, and we were hit by rocket fire, and we dashed. Fortunately, nobody was hit. We dashed off and back to the houses, not realizing at the moment this was the prelude to an attack by the Germans to try to retake Neuendorf. And it started to rain. And the Germans came down from Ruth and tried to penetrate uh, into the town and our guys did a really great job. Uh, and I, I thought, gee, we better be careful because these houses, and for instance, the one we were staying in, uh, all we had was a, a, a first floor. The, the second floor had no walls. And we had two new men. Uh, one was Sergeant Botus, uh, <laughs> who was going to take the place of Sergeant Garber as the as the uh, communications uh, head. And the other one, uh, and his first name was Clarence. 
uh, uh, he was from North Carolina, and he had a cough. And as darkness had fallen, a darkness came on, rain was falling, the Germans were trying to uh, insert themselves maybe around the houses. And we, our house didn't have a, a door, uh, but I said to uh, Sergeant Botus and Clarence, I said, now, uh, stay back, but don't talk. <laughs> If a German comes along here, shoot him. And then I I went up to the second floor and thought, I, I thought I heard a burp gun back at the corner of this, outside at the corner of this house. And so I went up there with a, a grenade and I looked over the edge of the floor to see if I could see anything. And just then, a young runner came bolted out of the adjoining house, down the alleyway, through our doors, and then I looked, <laughs> and there in a shell hole, a deep shell hole, we had mounted a mortar, and they were firing. And I said, well, I'll be darned. Uh, and so things went on like that through the night, and eventually uh, the Germans gave up. And okay. I'm going to have to get a glass of that, water. That's great. We're going to go to break. And uh, so you get a glass of water. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. That's where I am on Facebook and Twitter as well. All of these shows are archived at my website. And we're talking with World War II veteran uh, Dick Manchester. He's with Company K. He was with Company K, 4th Battalion, 345th Regiment, 87th Division. Go to the website of the 87th Division, and Dick's memoirs are there as well as other soldiers. Uh, and uh, we actually, this is a s- part two of our interview with Dick Manchester because part one was last week. So you'll want to go back and listen to that. Dick Manchester, thank you so much. These stories are so fascinating. We're down to our last segment. And uh, so let's right. let's talk about Koblenz uh, in the okay. part four of your memoirs. All right. Well, uh, we were we were finally relieved uh, at Neuendorf uh, when Ruth was outflanked by I Company in our battalion, and so uh, we we moved out uh, of uh, of Neuendorf uh, and Ruth by this time, uh, and headed for the front, and. Uh, I was I was selected to uh, be one of the guards for the we couldn't believe it our our, our original uh, duffel bags that were all on a truck. Uh, I looked at it and they wanted us. And there was myself and one other fella and a driver. They wanted us to uh, guard the duffel bags uh, until they moved on to their next, till we moved on, K Company had moved on to the next town. So I finally got a chance to look from Ruth down to uh, Neuendorf. I was absolutely baffled. 
they could look down and see everything that we did. And I thought, why didn't they rain mortars down on us mm-hmm. continuously? Uh, because they could every time somebody stepped out of a house, they could see. Wow. And I think that's probably how we lost uh, the executive officer that showed up in one day and was gone the same day mm-hmm. simply because they dropped a mortar uh, virtually in front of him. Wow. So after after a day or several days uh we moved on and we caught up with the, the rest of k company and by this time there had been enough heavy rain that um, the third army which is what we were in was bogged down and so we had to uh, settle into some houses uh, and wait till the, the ground firmed up enough so that we could use trucks again. And we were supplied by airdrop. Um, it, was a, it was a good time to just simply settle back and relax a little bit. Uh, and so as we were sitting there one day, we were cleaning our, um, our weapons, and, and we were sort of in a... In a big semicircle uh, and uh, the seated next to me uh, was uh, uh, Tom McCabe uh, a Navajo he was something else again absolutely fearless and he had what was known as a grease gun, which was a little thing that looked like a grease gun, but it, it fired 45-millimeter uh, shells. And so he was cleaning it, and he lifted it to his shoulder and pulled the trigger, and I was sitting next to him, and that bullet passed so close to my nose, I know I could smell it. Oh, my Lord. Good grief. And I turned my head... And I, I, I looked <laughs> at him, and uh, I said, I didn't say anything. I just turned my head, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. And then, then he, he had to keep McCabe away from a strong drink because he found something, some schnapps or something somewhere, and the next thing I know, I'm looking out the window again, and he's trying to ride a, uh, a horse bareback and keeps falling off and eventually gave up and just laid there. Oh. And I said, boy, that's McCabe, all right. That's McCabe, huh? And so this idyll, if I could call it that, uh, lasted, a, oh, I don't know, maybe two or three days. And then uh, we got back on the trucks again. And this time, we were headed for our uh, for Koblenz. Okay. The 345th Regiment uh, only had been assigned uh, the mission to take the city of Koblenz, uh, which is at the confluence of the Mosul and the Rhine Rivers. And so we looked at it from a bluff. uh, on the on the on the west side, and looked down on it, and it looked to be fairly quiet. Um, 
so we uh, descended the hill and we got on to by this time uh, small crafts that were operated by the engineers and uh, and had a an outboard motor and they motored us across uh, and, and we started on a we started out on a perimeter road that followed the Rhine River uh, and then we had to stop. There was one long regimental line trying to get into uh, Koblenz, and I could hear some firing up ahead, and so we stopped, and we waited and waited, and I said, oh, I'm going to see if we can see ahead, and there was a vineyard off to, uh, a vineyard off to our right, so I jumped over onto a stone fence, and I thought, well, I'll just walk up the hill a little bit, see if I can see what's going on ahead. And so I went a little bit, a little bit more through the vineyard, and finally I, I got up to where the vineyard owner's house was. And he was, he had been watching me. He said, oh, uh, he said, this is my son, uh, and, and his his arm was in a sling. He said he was hit by masonry this morning when a shell hit just above our doorway. I could see he was right. I could see a chunk of masonry had gone out of there. And they asked me if I would like to stop, if I would like to have lunch. And so I said, well, I, I'll have to hurry. So I sat down with him, had something to eat, and uh, I paid for it by giving them whatever was left of my cigarette pack. And I worked my way back down through the vineyard, and the line hadn't moved at all. But you'd gotten lunch, so that was a good thing. I got my lunch, you're right. Uh, so um, eventually, our company was given the uh, a task uh, to not uh, uh, to um, surround Fort Constantine. Uh, that was the primary uh, ancient uh, citadel that uh, defended Koblenz. And the company was on a small, was on a knoll, uh, and it was overlooking the Fort, Fort Constantine itself, and we proceeded from the knoll uh, down a path. Uh, I was waiting for us to be fired upon, but we weren't. Uh, past the 30-foot-high walls of the fort itself, and down we got to the, to the uh, end of the fort, and we were at a railroad embankment. Then the company, all in a single file, started to cross a, cross the field in front of the railroad embankment, and at that time, a machine gun opened up, and everybody scattered. I, my task that day was to carry the spare battery for the walkie-talkie, uh, and uh, I did a foolish thing. I was the last man in a line of probably... Uh, 150 men, and there was a there was a a, a house right.
right there. Instead of going with the other fellas, I ducked behind the house. Uh, the rest of them ran across the field and under an overpass, under an under over uh, underpass, uh, up to the other side of the railroad. So I thought, oh God, now what? So I I went up the steps to the house, which was like so many houses, was just a shell of of four walls, and. I'm thinking about what to do next, and by this time, I can hear German voices in the next house. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, my God, uh, I've got Germans over here. Uh, and then uh, our men from K Company had by this time uh, gone through the underpass and on the other side, and they were now in the railroad station. They were. I was looking across the tracks, the elevated tracks, at them. <coughs> and to my, I, I'm. I, I don't know how to describe the feeling, uh, and I'm not going to use the man's name, but he ran out from the railroad station and lay down on the tracks. Wow. And the machine gun from the fort had killed him. Oh. And I, I wanted to yell at him, but the other, the, the other fellows in the railroad station kept yelling at him, get out of there, get out of there. Uh, but I, I don't know what happened to him. He just well. broke for some reason. Well. So, so what about you? So you're what there on the me? other side. What about you? Yeah, what about me? I thought, I'm not going to try to run, a, run across this foot, the length of a football field by myself. All the machine gunner has to do is, is keep following me. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go under the front stoop of the house, and I'll wait this thing out. And so I did, and I sat there, and everybody had, by this time, everybody had diarrhea. And I'm, I'm under the front stoop, uh, and I thought, well, let's see, I might as well read this. Uh, I don't think the Germans are come, gonna come out of those houses. I had the overseas edition of the Time Magazine in my hip pocket, so I started to read it. And about mid-afternoon, uh, a drunken uh, German with a big bag sack over his shoulder, he staggered out and followed the, uh, across the field to the, to the railroad tracks. And I briefly thought, why don't I jump up? I'll, get, I'll use him as a shield and we'll cross together. And then I thought, I don't know if there's an SS guy up there. Maybe he'll shoot both of us. <coughs> so I, I stayed there till it got dark. Okay. Hey, uh, Dick Manchester, we have just a couple of minutes, so probably one more story about Koblenz, um, possibly okay. the toothbrush. I found that very interesting. Okay. Um, eventually, darkness fell. Uh, I got up, uh, 
followed the line uh, of the railroad tracks through the underpass and, and went to the other side. I didn't know where K Company was, and it was dark. I also didn't know what the password was. So I thought, oh, i got to find the password. So uh, I saw that there was a, uh, one of our uh, patrols coming down the street. So I went back in the shadows of the doorway, and when they got abreast of me, I, I said, halt. And they stopped, and I said, uh, can you tell me what the password is? And so they gave me the password, and I went on, and they also told me where K Company was located. I went over to K Company. Uh, I would say that the acting company commander was uh, upset. Uh, his name was Booker, and was he was a he was a a, a Texan, uh, and when he was mad, uh, he was mad. And he said, you know, gave me hell for uh, having the spare battery and suppose the SCR 300 had gone down and so forth. And he says, I want you to guide the cooks down here with our dinner. And so I said, yes, sir. And so by now I knew the way. I went back under the railroad underpass, past the house where I hid, uh, went past the fort, up the hill to the knoll where we started out, picked up the the, uh, the cooks and told them, don't make a sound. And we came back down the hill, underpass, uh, through the streets of Koblenz and to the company headquarters and dinner was served okay then i had to take them i had to take them back the same way then i had to come back then i had to go up before daylight the next morning and bring them down again oh my gosh hey dick manchester we are out of time for this show but i would love to ask you back so that we could uh, finish up your memoirs would that be a possibility Okay, we will get that arranged. So this is Kim Munson with the World War II uh, Americhicks Project. Thank you so much to Dick Manchester. Uh, These are wonderful stories. Be sure to check out my website, americhicks.com, and God bless you and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.